We don't deserve to get the job we want. We don't deserve to find love as a fat person. So now we're into ableism, which is the privileging of health as morality. Welcome to today's podcast episode. It's an episode that very nearly didn't happen with today's guest, and I'll share a little bit more about that in a moment, but it's a conversation that I just loved having. I loved having this conversation because it felt personally enlightening to me and really, really important. And so to be completely honest with you, this is a topic I've wanted to bring to the podcast for a long time, but I have felt very much out of my depth and very aware of my own thin privilege and very aware that I don't have the lived experience to share on this topic in a really thoughtful, meaningful way. I can, of course, share my own experience uh, from this side of fat phobia and Every single person listening, every single person watching is impacted by diet culture, is impacted by fat phobia, is impacted by just body image in general. You cannot avoid it. You cannot avoid the messaging that we are sent from the moment we can absorb messaging of any kind. And so I had some fear around having this conversation on the podcast because I'm aware of my own limitations. I also think every single person now is so aware of how important it is to actually make space for people who have those lived experiences to talk about them. And then at the same time, I also think, well, why not platform other people who have something to share and something to say? And so I started to change my thinking rather than thinking, oh, I'm not the right person to have this kind of conversation. I'm like, well, hang on. I'm having these conversations in real life. This is the stuff I talk to, uh, you know, this is the stuff I talk about with my partner. This is the stuff I talk about with my own girlfriends and my friends and family and even my kids. So why is it that I feel like I'm not allowed to talk about it on the podcast? And it was far less about being allowed and much more just being aware, like being aware that I present as someone who people would likely go, oh, well, she's kind of like the blueprint of the problem, right? You know, when we think about fat phobia or um, like social justice for body liberation and all those sorts of things, the thin white woman is not who you want to hear from. That's not the person that you want to platform and be like, okay, this is the person to listen to. And so I wanted to invite someone onto the podcast, obviously, to have this conversation And there were a few people kind of floating around my mind because I've been listening to a lot of podcasts, reading books, and just trying to understand more. We're all so limited by our own lived experiences and what we're exposed to. You know, our world can become very, very small. And I think it's exciting that we live in a day and age now where our world can become bigger by listening to other people's stories and reading other people's words and all of that sort of stuff. And so I myself had been consuming a lot of podcasts and I came across a podcast that 
just hooked me from the beginning. It's called Fat Joy with Sophia Apostle. And I started listening to the conversations that Sophia was having on her podcast And I just found myself feeling like a better human for hearing these conversations. I felt incredibly grateful to the insights that her guests were sharing. And I just felt like a bit of a kinship in a strange way, you know, that good old parasocial relationship. And I knew that I wanted to reach out to Sophia. So I did. And my fear was confirmed when I reached out to Sophia. And Sophia talks about this during our episode. Her initial response to me wanting to have a chat with her was like, no. It is not my job to educate this woman, this thin white woman on fat phobia or body liberation. I think at first glance, she went, oh, like thin white woman jumping around in crop tops on Instagram. No, thanks. That's not my bag. That's kind of part of the problem. And I'm so grateful that she was open and honest in sharing that part of her reaction with me because one, I was expecting it. And so I felt like a bit validated for expecting it. And also, I just think it's a really beautiful thing when someone who is out there spreading the word about breaking down stigmas and judgment and making real societal changes could actually own her own judgment as well. And just recently, like this week, actually, I had something similar happen. I am I had a podcasting audit session booked with someone who's incredible in the podcasting space. And when we met up, one of the things she said to me was like, I'm going to be brutally honest with you. And I said, please do. You know, there are certain people that I invite to be brutally honest when I value their opinions. And she said, when you first reached out and I looked at your social media, I thought, no, this woman is kind of part of the problem. And I believe those were her words, part of the problem. And then I listened to your podcast and there's a real disconnect. She said that she feels like when she was listening to my podcast, it's almost two different people. And that's interesting in itself, right? Because then there's this judgment, this internal uh, judgment to go, oh, well, someone who shares workouts in a crop top can't actually also be thinking about anti-fatness and fat phobia and be aware of her thin privilege. And I find that dichotomy so fascinating because there are just layers upon layers upon layers upon layers of judgments and stereotypes happening. I can't speak to the lived experience of being in a much larger body and having that discrimination happen to me. Sophia does a wonderful job of sharing experiences and platforming and advocating for other people who have had those experiences. I am mindful and aware of thin privilege. Was I mindful and aware of thin privilege 10 years ago? No, not at all. But I am now and I'm grateful that I have more of an understanding and more of a scope because if you don't know there's a problem, if you don't understand that there's a problem, then you don't see it. You don't, you almost don't believe that it's even real because it's so not real to you. And that's one of the things I've enjoyed the most about getting a little bit older and getting a little bit wiser, she says in her mid thirties. And I'm sure that I'll listen to this in my mid forties and mid fifties and laugh and think, oh yes, good one, Kylie, getting wiser at that age. But I have just found this dichotomy presented to me 
in several different ways. You know, even during the conversation with Nicole Matheson on the beauty load, and it's like this idea that we can't hold both. Like you can't be someone in a thin body and have that level of understanding. Of course, we all have limitations, but I just found it interesting. And of course, the lady that I met with for the podcasting audit, everything she said is so valid and so right to the point where I was tearing up. And I was like, I know this. I know. Like, I know that there is a disconnect between how I show up on Instagram and who I actually am over on the podcast. And I feel like the podcast is who I am in real life. That's probably why it's the thing I enjoy the most. You know, when I started using social media, this is a full tangent, but when I started using social media 10 years ago, it was very much the landscape of fitspo and morning routines and all of that sort of stuff. And I guess there's part of me that just hasn't quite found my feet in sharing other things over on social media, but I want to. It's very, very important to me. And this is an important conversation to me as well. I'm so grateful for Sophia's time, her energy, uh, just her enthusiasm, all of the work that she is doing. So Sophia is a body liberation coach, a podcast host, as I mentioned, and she's just out there doing so much good work in the world. So definitely jump on over and follow her on Instagram, follow her podcast, Get her into your ears because you will feel better. You will be better for it, I promise you. All right, let's get into my conversation with Sophia Apostle. Just quickly, a word from today's sponsors. Unless, of course, you're one of our Venti members. In that case, there are no ads and your episode is about to keep playing. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sophia, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to have this conversation with me. I'm very excited to be here um, talking to you, Kylie. Thank you for having me. I'm excited as well. And I'm also a little bit nervous because it's not a topic I've spoken about on the podcast before, but I've had so many conversations privately with loved ones, friends, and my children as well. And it is a topic that I think we need to shine a big light on. And so that topic is fat phobia. Um, you know what, Sophia, even just using the word fat, people still have problems with using the word fat. So maybe we start there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I would add anti-fatness as well to fat phobia. It's very, it's, there's so many yes. different words that have different connotations. So yeah, let's let's start using those words. That word fat is been weaponized basically. That's why it's so hard for us. It's been weaponized. And I mean, when you're a kid, what's the taunt that you get? Oh, you're fat. Or like my sister and brother when I was a kid, um they hate that I keep mentioning this, but they used to call me fat cow and that was like the ultimate insult and it would like shred my soul because it meant that because I was a bigger kid 
there was something wrong with me, right? There's this equation between fatness and a whole bunch of undesirable qualities. Yes. Growing up, I'm one of three girls and calling each other fat was like the deepest cut. Yes. And that's why it's still one of those words that I think people particularly, um, I'm not sure how old you are, Sophia, I'm 35, but I feel like it's one of those words still that people in my age group go, ooh, that's a bad word. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's so interesting to interact with it and go through a journey to reclaim it. So what's been happening, I think more and more, thankfully more and more publicly, is people have been reclaiming the word fat as a neutral descriptor for a body. So I'm a cis, white, hetero woman who has brown hair, brown eyes, and is fat. And it just gets to be a descriptor. So it it doesn't have to mean anything more than that. Um, But it's a journey to be able to say that word. I mean, up until my mid 30s, so I'm 43. So up until about my, yeah, like, mm, probably like 32, 33 is where I would say like my kind of fat liberation journey started. If anyone kind of suggested that I was fat, like I would cry, I would run away. Like I was so steeped in shame around that word. It's a really powerhouse word. Um, And reclaiming it, owning it is a way of mm, uncoupling from the um, assumptions of what that word means about us as a person. Because let me just ask you, Kylie, like that insult, (laughs) what, if you were called fat, like, what does it mean about you as a person? For me, the word fat growing up was really associated and I guess demonized with, you know, a fat person was a lazy person. A fat person was not as valuable as a thinner person. A fat person didn't care about themselves. I think, you know, there are so many descriptors we could go into, but I think the main kind of uh, theme when I think about it was fat equaled less worthy. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And so many of us grew up and are still growing up with that assumption. And it's perpetuated by what we would call diet culture, which is basically um, the system. It's an it's an oppressive system of beliefs and ideals that worth equals thin body. Right. Yeah. And here's the thing that I think a lot of people don't know, and I would we can I would love actually to talk about this, is that it's rooted in racism. And this is the part that people don't know. So there's so much anti-fatness, there's so much fat phobia, there's so much fat stigma, weight stigma, sizeism in all areas of our lives. And what we're most of us are deeply unaware of is that it's actually rooted in racism. Yes. And that's actually on my notes here because I wanted to discuss with you that intersectionality, but it sounds like it's more than intersectionality. It's actually the core. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So basically what happened, and there's an amazing book, if people are interested in the science of this, actually in the research of this, two great books, um, a book called Fearing the Black Body by Sabrina Strings and Belly of the Beast by Deshaun Harrison. 
um, they both go into kind of the the research and the history around this. So I'm I'm not just making it up. <laughs> There's definitely a lot of research around this. But basically, the early colonizers who were bringing enslaved people to North America, essentially from Africa, really wanted to differentiate themselves as morally and ethically. Here's where we get into value: morally and ethically superior to the most yes. black people they were enslaving. So yes. by creating this separation, body size, skin color, very visible characteristics, it was suddenly e- easier to separate. Oh, us versus them. And this is where the beauty ideal comes from, right? So thinner and whiter equals better. That's what it is, isn't it? It is the us versus them mentality of draw a line in the sand. What side are you on? Are you on the accepted side or the unaccepted side? Right. And here's the thing too that, I mean, I'm a fat activist. I do fat liberation work. I have a whole podcast about this, but it's not just about fat people. Like this harms all people, you know? Of course, of course. Because it's, yeah. perpet- it's perpetuating uh, that oppression. Yeah, exactly. And then what do, I'm going to speak very, you know, generally, but often, and it's it's happening with men too, but most women, I'm going to overgeneralize, but I'm actually not really overgeneralizing if you look at the re- research, most women will start dieting in order to achieve this thin ideal. Like kindergartners now, when they're doing research, Kindergartners are saying they would rather be, um, oh, I'm going to get it wrong. But basically, like even at age five, they don't, they know that fat equals bad and they would rather have like an injury, like a broken leg or something like that than be fat. And so, what is that set up for the rest of their lives? And maybe the most shocking thing is that doesn't surprise me. Mm hmm. That does not surprise me at all because whilst we are making leaps and bounds towards, you know, having better conversations and improving things, there's still so much. There's still so much that we are swimming in. And it doesn't surprise me, you know, I can remember being in grade six and going to my end of school, it must have been grade seven actually, and I had a roll of tape and I took the tape and wrapped it around my stomach. Oh, yes. Oh, so yeah, to hold so it wouldn't be yes, yeah, yes, yeah. Your beautiful belly taped down, yeah. Because somewhere along the line, you had the idea that this is what you had to do to receive love, to get safety, to be worthy, to be accepted. Yeah, yeah. It's the worthiness, the acceptance. It does impact everyone, but obviously, it impacts people who are in larger bodies so much more. And I'd love to get into talking about those things, Sophia, because for people that are walking around in straight-sized bodies, there's a lack of awareness. And I will put my hand up and say, you know, the vernacular, it's talking about fat phobia, thin privilege, all those sorts of things. That's never crossed my mind in this way until the last couple of years. And just having a little bit of an understanding that someone in a larger body walks into a doctor's surgery and lists off some medical concerns the response they're going to get is about their size. Whereas if I walk into a doctor's surgery and list off concerns, I'm going to get a different response. 
Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, it is the anti-fatness, anti-fat bias, both conscious and unconscious, is baked into. Again, this is why it's systemic. So it's baked into systems. So just to to paint a quick little picture, I recently on my podcast interviewed someone who's a funeral director, and she was saying that you know, like I've always thought, oh, I'll just donate my body to science. I can't. They don't want my body because it's fat. So medical students, so we start like literally like started the origin of medical training. I also had a medical student on the podcast and I've had doctors on the podcast talk about, so every stage, fatness is not allowed. It's not practiced with. So they don't get cadavers to learn off of. Instruments are not made for fat bodies. Then you go through medical school And again, when I interviewed the medical student, she was saying it was horrific. She had to file multiple human rights complaints because every single PowerPoint slide from every single instructor was filled with headless fat bodies. Everything was blamed on fatness, every disease. And make sure I come back to that because I'm going to like blow your mind with the truth of that, how that is not true. Um, Then you go, then these, these, you know, students graduate, they become residents, they're in hospital, they're learning from doctors, who their supervisors, who are steeped in anti-fatness. That's how they get taught on the job. And then they go out and then they encounter six, well, at least, so in North America, I don't know the Australia stats, I should have looked that up. But in North America, 60% of us are plus size, 60%. So 60% of their patients are plus size and they are treating them like shit with filled with bias and assumptions. Why is it that you can't donate your body if you're in a larger body to science? What's the reason? Is it because they say, oh, we don't have the instruments for that? They is that the reason? No, we don't. I mean, the funeral director wasn't sure. I keep thinking I need to like get a medical. I don't Round know that two. medical. Oh, yeah, right. Like, I don't know that a medical research facility would even talk to me, quite frankly. But yeah, because they, I don't know why. I don't know why. It's just so steeped in bias. And it's, you can just see where the whole, the whole system is broken every step of the way. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. And you and I have spoken a little bit as well. We've exchanged some messages surrounding like the unconscious bias and how deep it really runs to the point like at the minute I'm studying to be a counselor. And during that course, it's really, really important that when you're entering the field as a counselor, you have an awareness of your biases, the things that, you know, are going to trigger and elicit a different response in you, you know, such as you have a history with alcoholism, you know, maybe you can't actually facilitate an alcoholic client because your view is going to be skewed. What are the things that are going to make you look differently at someone, whether that's economic reasons, um, cultural, all of that stuff? It was not listed in there. And you brought this to my attention. (laughs) It was not listed in there. Anti-fatness, you know, and it's so true because that wiring runs so deep that we see someone in a bo- in a bigger body and we make the assumption yeah that has been you know drilled into us from a young age that person's lazy that person's not valuable they that did person this doesn't to themselves. like themselves yes yeah 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 it's so true i mean 
I mean, <laughs> this also blows my mind when you think about people who are anti-oppression educators doing DE&I work, so diversity, equity, inclusion work, right? There's consulting companies, organizations are hiring people to make their workplaces more diverse, more accepting, more inclusive. Size, anti-fatness is never part of those offerings. So even the people who are doing this work, who are trained to do this work, yeah, cannot get over, like, there's no acknowledgement of that missing piece. Or not no, there are a few, but like, by and large, I would say 95% of DE&I companies don't even talk about sizeism. Why does that blind spot exist? Yeah. Okay, so... Lots of so reasons. Like, how much time do you have? I know, I'm like, do we have 10 hours? And can we call 10 more people <laughs> at least? I mean, I'm just going to like bullet point it. There are so many people doing amazing work around this. Uh, if people really want to like understand and are really curious and if you enjoy having your mind blown and like the curtain pulled back, you need to listen to the maintenance phase podcast, Aubrey oh, Gordon and Michael Habs, right? I love them. Yes. I just They're want to hang brilliant. out with them all the time. I know. I know. I got to interview Aubrey and I get to interview her again. I know. <sighs> I know. I know. We've, jealous. <laughs> we've reached out, but we've not had any yeah. luck. I'm like <laughs> continually knocking on the window of like, please speak to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the work that they've done on that podcast is incredible. They deconstruct, pull back the curtain of the BMI, right? The body mass index. Calories in, calories out is total bullshit. Like basically they're just... And this is what I, you know, I'm just going to do like the highlights because I think if you do want deeper information, it's just like if you wanted to become less racist, because the truth is, and this is going to probably upset some people, but I'll speak for myself. Because again, when we look at systemic oppression, racism is part of systemic oppression, right? I am a white person. Therefore, I, I am racist. I cannot be racist because I was raised in a white supremacy based culture. So my responsibility, especially as a white person, is to do the work to unlearn that. So I do lots of reading. I follow tons of black activists. I do lots of anti-racism workshops and courses because that's my responsibility if I'm going to like unlearn racism. Anti-fatness is the exact same thing in terms of what it takes to unlearn. We have to dig deeper. It's not like, give me the five rules and that's it. But just, yeah, go ahead. Yes, there's a great quote and I'm going to butcher it, but it's along the lines of where when your privilege intersects with someone else's oppression, that's where you need to do the work. Yes. Oh my God. Right? Yeah. Mm. And so white privilege would be, you know, the racism piece and thin privilege would be the anti-fat piece. So if I start high level, like diet, the diet industry, diet culture, which basically is a system that worships, like worships thinness, right? It equates it to health and moral virtue. That's a definition by Christy Harrison, also an amazing person to check out, um, is estimated at at least like $90 billion as an industry, so we're talking buku bucks, right? This is capitalism at its best. So there's a lot of money at stake. There are a lot of organizations, companies, research, pharmaceutical companies, lobbyists, you know, that influence that 
um, that impact how we see fatness. Because there is a lot of money to be made if everyone is trying to get thinner. Yes, there's so much to benefit from for so many conglomerates that are much bigger than us and the power that be. So, of course, it is um, attractive to keep the blinders on and not bring it to the forefront and not make massive positive changes because what would that do to the economy? What would that do if people liked themselves? Exactly. Right. Exactly. And we start where this is starting to be a little more talked about, like in New York recently, um, weight discrimination laws have just been passed. Like you cannot fire someone just for being fat anymore in New York City, like everywhere else in the States and in Canada. If you're fat, you can just be fired because you're fat. Like there's no protection. But how? So in terms of like, so Sophia, if someone is overweight, their boss can say, we're letting you go because you're unhealthy or because we don't have a chair that you can fit in. Like, is that is that what that means to say you can let someone go because of their weight? No, you can just say, you know what? You don't fit We what we want our customers to see. Oh, you can fuck. just be fired. Yeah, I know. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Here's the other thing I want to touch on that I think is really important is that this rhetoric, this kind of, and one of the reasons why everyone gets away with this and why it's not contested more broadly is that there is this core belief that fat people have done this to them, done this to themselves and that fatness is unhealthy. Here's the thing. And this is where you absolutely, if you're interested in diving deeper into the health stuff, you need to go check out Reagan Chastain because Reagan's weight and health newsletter, I think I got that right, weight and health newsletter on Substack is brilliant, incredible. Everything she does is so, she's like a researcher. And so what the research actually shows, and we have known this for over a century, like this is the thing, this is not new, this has been over a hundred years, we have known that fatness is not unhealthy. It's not, but that's a core belief. That's why this can keep perpetuating because this healthism slash ableism, which is that we are in control of our health. And therefore, if we quote unquote, choose not to be healthy, then we are bad people. There's a morality clause around it. Then we don't deserve good health care. We don't deserve to get the job we want. We don't deserve to find love as a fat person. So now we're into ableism, which is the privileging of health as morality. And we actually don't really have much control over our health. Again, research shows there are over 220, I think it's 223 factors that influence our health and food and exercise, which is what everyone always says, food and exercise, eat less, work out more, are maybe at the most like 20%. Most of it's genetics and we really don't have control, but that doesn't earn money. And it really is the hill that people will die on. I have had so many infuriating conversations in real life. I have tuned out from infuriating conversations online. And I do understand to an extent because we are raised with the whole body mass index, uh, the value, the worth, all of the stuff. But there are some people who are just so fixated on if you have more fat on your body, you are unhealthy. 
Yeah. Yeah. Even and though I- the statistics prove otherwise. This is the thing. Like, even if you use the body mass index, which is total bullshit, by the way, it's basically a tool of eugenics that was created as a population level metric for white Northern Europeans who are men. So it doesn't work in any way, unless that's you. Anyway, Meaning Space has a whole podcast episode about it. So worth a listen. Um, okay. So even if, let's just say, let's like suspend our you know, what we know to be true for a little while. Even if we use the BMI data, what it actually shows in terms of mortality rates is that people who are, I hate the O word, I'm going to use the word, we call it the O word in um, activist circles, but obese. So people who are obese have the exact same morality, (laughs) that's a good slip, mortality rates as people who, according to the BMI, are quote unquote normal. The exact same. Right. Yeah. So it's like, and actually, the people who have the highest mortality rates are the ones who I forget what the BMI calls it, but it's like where you're underweight. So again, like even if we use the tools of oppression, they show they show this. It still doesn't make sense. Right. I know it still doesn't. Here, the other problem I think is that. The way our bodies work, first of all, our bodies are really complex um, systems, and that's why calories in, calories out is bullshit. Again, another great episode on maintenance phase about this, um, where they go into the science of what that actually, why that doesn't work. Um, but every, almost anybody, almost anybody can restrict exercise and lose some amount of weight short-term. But I mean, as someone who dieted for most of her life, I was excellent at losing weight, like most people. What happens is for 95 to 98% of people who have done intentional weight loss through restriction is at around the 18-month mark, they will start to gain the weight back. Conveniently, most, if not all, like weight loss studies. So Noom, Weight Watchers, oh my God, the latest from Novo Nordisk around Wegovy, which is um, Ozempic, the weight loss drugs, bariatric surgeries. No matter what is done at around, mm, for some people it's 12 months, a year, year and a half, you will start to gain the weight back. Conveniently, most weight loss studies stop at the 12 month mark. But even then you can see the trend line going up. This is the weight cycle. What we actually know is weight cycling is one of the worst things for our bodies because about 60% of people who have lost weight and then regain it, what happens? I'm a classic example of this. You regain more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And then you restrict again and you just repeat this weight cycle. And again, it's really clear from research that weight cycling is 
terrible, terrible, terrible for our bodies and actually can account for a lot of the things that people say are caused by fatness. It's actually the weight cycling. Yes, weight cycling has to be far worse for your body and also far worse for your mind. Like the yeah. psychological impact of that roller coaster, of that striving, that continual restriction, oh all of that stuff, that's so bad for you. But also, Sophia, the psychological impacts of anti fatness or fat phobia, yeah. that's got to be worse for your health too than actually just being in a bigger body. Yeah, it's horrible. It really is. Yeah, it's true. It's true. The weight stigma causes stress. It causes it causes all sorts of stuff in our bodies. Absolutely. Oh, go ahead. Oh, that's okay. I was just going to say, I'd love to hear more about that in terms of as you're moving through the world, you know, and, and like I said to you in voice messages, I when I reached out to you, I wouldn't have been surprised if you said, uh, no, thanks. I don't really want to have a chat with a size six blonde woman who was all about sharing workouts. I would totally go fair, like fair. I can understand that. I understand a little bit about thin privilege and I'm understanding more and more and more of it. And I'm so curious about it and why I am the way I am and why society is the way it is. And da, 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 da. It's a whole big thing, but I haven't experienced yeah. walking onto an aircraft yeah. And having oh. fear about sitting or, you know, recently my family, we were at a theme park and there were three people in front of us. And again, I still, you know, I still wouldn't use this word. And this is what I, I Sophia, I wouldn't say, oh, there were three fat people in front of me, but mm -hmm. obviously I have to, I have to say that because then that is part of destigmatizing it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But there were three people in front of me and they got turned away. They couldn't go down the water slide. And you know, they had to walk all the way down past oh, all these humiliating. people. And I haven't lived that, but I would love to know about those impacts, what it is like to move through a world that is telling you you don't fit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, anti-fatness is what we're talking about, but it's the same with you know any other any other oppressiveness like racism, ableism, um, transphobia, like people who are different are treated terribly. And there's actually, there's, there's words for this. It's called the body hierarchy ladder. And Sonia Renee Taylor talks about this, who actually lives in New Zealand. She's in your neck of the woods. Um, she wrote The Body's Not an Apology, which is what she's really well known for. Um, and basically, if you are not thin, white, cis, hetero, neurotypical, because also neurodivergence comes into this as well, right? Like the systems are not built for anyone who is basically not a thin white dude, I mean, quite frankly. So as a fat person, oh, it is, honestly, it is awful. It is awful. And here's the thing. It's, there's also, it's like, there's a bit of a spectrum where if you're like a size 16, 18, you're considered plus size and people might say, oh, like you're curvy. And you may not experience the type of systemic oppression as in like comments from doctors not being able to go down a water slide as someone who might be a size I'll I'll just use like 3 4x or even 5 6x into size 30 we call it like it kind of goes again there's some there some of the categories are a bit problematic but there's this general idea of like small fat medium fat large fat and infinifat um so I'm about a size 24 I'm kind of like, like I would say I'm probably a large fat. 
Um, and so, so an InfiniFat would be bigger than me. I, at this point, so, my, and my body has changed. I'm on some medication for endometriosis and it, and it changed my body because it's very hormonal based medication. I was always fat, but like it, it just changed it. And it's very interesting to be experiencing the world, just speaking for myself, where I now, where I would normally kind of be able to fit or make it work. Like I can't now in certain ways, in certain places, like chairs, like I cannot squeeze myself into a chair. That is fucking humiliating. I left a restaurant like six months ago in tears because there was only one booth and it was one of the booths where the tables are locked down. So there's no movement. And it was like, oh my God. And in that moment, it was so confronting. And I literally felt like my entire sense of humanity, who I am as a person with 43 years of lived experience did not count for anything. I was just somebody that couldn't fit. And I went to a full Brene Brown sanctioned shame spiral. Like I like silent tears for 45 minutes driving home. My poor husband was like, how can I help him? Like, I don't know. I'm like in a full grip and I'm, I'm, I do this work (laughs) for, you know, for a large part of my life. And it is, Yeah. And that's, and I'm not even like, there are people who experience way worse than I do. Yes. I'm sitting here. I've got tears in my eyes because I can only imagine that experience, you know, and I've heard other fat activists talking about the shame of walking into clothing stores and not being accepted, not being able to even clothe their body in store and being told Maybe you can find something online. And again, it's this othering, right? Yeah. It's like, we're going to put you over here. We've got the good people over here and yeah. you you go over there. And maybe if you can be good, if you can get weight loss surgery or right. you can treat yourself well, if you can learn to be good, you can come back over here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you, if you are the, we call that being the good fatty. <laughs> if you try to conform, then maybe, maybe you get entry into our society you know? Yeah, it's terrible. And this shows up. I mean, it's funny, like (laughs) one of the places where I was a sales director for a while at um, a really cool tech startup. And uh, like the the boardroom chairs were those like tulip chairs that are actually kind of tight for like most bodies, but I literally did not fit my bum. And like we had lots of meetings in there. So I started rolling my office chair in but the, the what I found hilarious is like the next meeting, everyone rolled their office chairs in because they were more comfortable. I did it out of necessity. They did it out of comfort. And so it was fine. But it was like, again, whoever bought those chairs did not think about anybody other. And most of us, we only think of like what works for our, our size of body. It's just it's a natural bias. And I get it. But when we're designing spaces, when we're designing services, we should be designing for the most oppressed, right? The most vulnerable, you know? What does that look like for physical accessibility, fatness, neurodivergence? Like all of these should be considered when we're designing for people because we're not all thin white dudes, (laughs) you know? Obviously, education is a massive key to understanding. But what 
else can we do? Like we can educate ourselves. We can listen to other people's lived experiences. What can the everyday person do? Someone that's listening right now, what are some beginner steps, I guess? Yeah. I mean, one of the first things to do is to diversify your social media feed. If you are not following lots of fat people, start doing it. Because the thing is, the way our brain works is we, what we consider quote unquote normal is what we see all the time. This is why marketing is so effective, right? This is why there is a body ideal uh, because it's what we see every commercial, every movie. So start following fat people, literally go to your socials, put in fat model, start there, start with fat models doing amazing work. Start with fat activists, start with, you know, oh my gosh, if you're into fashion, I follow so many amazing fashion fashionistas um, (laughs) where I get fashion advice and you start to, it starts to normalize that there are different size bodies. And that actually starts the way people think. So to me, that's a really powerful, really low hanging fruit. And while you're doing it, also follow some people who are disabled, follow some people who are neurodivergent. If you're not following a ton of trans people right now, please start we need to be supporting our trans communities in a very big way, our LGBTQIA, like, oh my gosh, Black activists, Indigenous, like, like diversify. If you if you look at your feed and you scroll a couple times and you only see white people who are in thin bodies, like, do better. I'm just going to say, do better. You are not doing a good job as a citizen of this world. I'm just going to be harsh about it, Kylie. <laughs> Please be harsh. Give it to me. When it comes to our children, right, mm. you know, just as you were speaking, then I was like, yes, that's been something that's important to me, diversifying my feed. Who am I following? And I've really, really held myself to account on that. And I think when it comes to our kids, right, how do we help them? And I, I'll just speak from my experience, right? I've got twin boys. They're nearly 10 years old. I started them off in a teeny tiny school because I felt that was the best thing for them. We live in this beautiful, beautiful suburb that I often call Pleasantville because I feel like there is a dome over it and I walk around and everyone is the fucking same. Everyone is married, 2.5 kids, small white dog, check, 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 (laughs) right? I'm part of the problem. (laughs) And I look at my boys and I, I see the benefit of them living in a small sleepy town. But then we go to the city, like to Brisbane City for us or down to Sydney. Like we recently took our boys to celebrate World Pride in Sydney, which was incredible. Um, Yeah, so much fun. I really pride myself on being very inclusive with my language and everything I try and teach the boys. But we live somewhere where there's hardly any diversity. You know, we don't see gay couples walking down the street holding hands. Most people look like me in this suburb. And I often think like, how do I help the kids to broaden their horizons you know, while straddling that line of being like, I actually really like this town. Of course. So, you know, I'm always saying, I'm always saying to my partner, like, we've got to go up to Brisbane and take the kids yeah. there and let them experience things. And we've got to take them to Sydney and da 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 But it is hard to make sure your yeah. kids are also getting a wider view of the world. So true. Oh my gosh. Um, well, 
there's, again, I'm going to drop another name. So Virginia Soul Smith wrote a book called Fat Talk, Parenting the Age of Diet Culture. It is recently released. It is brilliant. She's been like on NPR and like all the like big news outlets talking about this. So definitely check out her book because she is the expert on this or one of the, the big experts on this. Um, I think what you said is brilliant that you are being intentional about showcasing difference to them. I mean, the, it, this is such a, again, so much of this is like, it comes back to who we are as individuals. So one of the best things I think we can do for our kids is unpack our own bias. Cause here's the thing, like the biggest influence on kids are their caregivers, right? I'm a stepmom of a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old. I've been in their life for four years. When they first came to us, their mom is extremely diet culture focused. These kids at, I met them at eight and 10, were reading nutrition labels and counting calories. And I was, and and being like, oh, this has like five grams of sugar. Should I eat this? I've had so many grams of sugar today. And I'm like, what the fuck is happening right now? Why are, why is this in the heads of eight year old and 10 year old when what they should be doing is just like playing and eating foods that they're drawn to, like food as fuel, food as pleasure, food as, food as joy. Um, and they were like, they had all kinds of stuff in their minds around, um, exercise too. So, I have, and my partner have actively been, we talk about fatness. I talk about, I run a podcast called Fat Joy. We talk about, we have fat art in our house. We have pictures, art of fat bodies. Um, we, we talk about it. We talk about racism overtly. Like we just, we talk about all this stuff. So if parents do their own work, it's going to trickle into the kids too. Yeah. And I love that you've said that you talk about it with your kids. I love that because I am so open and so honest with my boys. I talk to them like they, well, I mean, we could get into like, I was going to say like that they understand. Of course, there are times when you've got to tailor the way that you explain things, but we have big conversations. Like last night around the dinner table, we were talking about um, how people push back on, is it fair? for trans women to compete against cis women. And like we were having that conversation and we were all, it wasn't about like, that's a wrong point of view. That's a right one. It was just an interesting conversation. You know, what are the, what are the implications? What are the other options? And it came up actually, Sophia, because my partner has applied to go on the TV show Survivor and went, is it one in a million, whatever. But we were in pre- because we were having conversations about that. We have started watching Survivor as a family, and the boys have never been exposed to it. And so, one of my boys said, "I really feel strongly that Survivor should be fifty-fifty women and men, regardless of how people get voted out." And I said, "That's an interesting one." And I said, "I wonder then if we're having fifty percent cis males, fifty percent women. Like, do we then need to bring in fifty percent?" of people that identify as they, thems, like, right. like, and so that opened up a conversation. And again, I'm like, I don't know what's right. Yeah. I don't know what's politically correct. I don't understand it all, but let's have a conversation. And so these are things that 
sometimes parents feel this like, oh, I want to protect my child, but it's actually teaching them critical thinking and it's teaching them empathy and to be curious and to also hear other people's opinions. And, you know, I was so proud the other day. I mean, there are lots of things in parenting I get wrong, but I was so proud the other day because I was listening to a podcast and on the podcast, uh, a guest was sharing a funny story. And the funny story was surrounding a conversation he was in where a woman took a bite of a sandwich and she accidentally bit, uh, spit some of her sandwich out onto his lip and his response was to lick it up. And it was a funny story. But in the lead up to that story, he was saying, oh, this person worked at my school and she was a really large woman. And my son said, why did he say that? He waited till the end of the story and he goes, why did he say she was a large woman? What has that got to do with the funny part of the story? And like my partner just looked at me. I know my partner looked at me and was like, that's you. That's That's your son. Yeah. I'm always like, we're raising raising feminists. And like, I try, I try. And I, I get it wrong in a lot of ways, you know? Yeah. but I think it's okay yeah yeah because like here's what I love about that it's okay to get it wrong we I mean when it is actually like this idea of perfection is actually built into us by white supremacy white supremacy wants us to be wants us white people to be scared about getting it wrong so then we won't do it so actually instead what's better is I can get it wrong. I can make a mess. I can clean up. I can I can then go do some research and then come back and have a kid, a conversation with the kid. Like, oh, hey, I looked into this a bit more and here's what I learned. Let's like continue the conversation, right? Oh, that's such an interesting way to look at it. And you're so right. I hadn't thought of it through that lens of all of this is about being good and being compliant. And yes. so by going, oh, sometimes I get it wrong, that like keeps people wanting to be good in quotes and compliant and small and straight-sized and all of the perfect things, be a white man type of thing. So that's such a helpful way of looking at it. Like, yeah, you are going to get it wrong sometimes in conversation, but that's, that's actually okay. moving the dial forward. Yes, yes. And we don't need to be so scared of discomfort. This is the other piece. We are so scared of being uncomfortable. And again, talk about privilege. I have the privilege of being uncomfortable, of being comfortable, right? People who are being oppressed don't get that privilege. So again, we come back to like, it's so important for us to do our own work. I want to add one more thing about the kid thing of why, again, just another reason why it's so important that we as caregivers and just, I think, humans in the world, why it's so important for us to do our own anti-oppression work, our own anti-fat work, our own anti-racism work, is that it's really hard to have the kind of conversation you had with your kids if you yourself had bias towards trans people, for example. So how this shows up with anti-fatness is, you know, a parent or both caregivers, parents, whoever is kind of like the primary influence and caregivers to kids uh, has feelings about their own body, has their own internalized anti-fat bias, their own fat phobia. They might not even say it out loud, but they have it inside of them. And again, we all come by, honestly, it's the waters in which we swim. It's the, this, this has been given to us without our consent. So it just lives inside of us until we change it. 
And so let's say, and I've heard this from countless, like, especially moms, I've heard this from lots of moms that I've worked with where like the kid will come to them, put their hand on the mom's belly and be like, mom, your belly is jiggly. So what is the, if someone has deeply internalized shame around their body, what's going to happen in that moment? They're going to be so in their own reaction that they won't even be able to have a conversation with their kids. So when I say like, we have to do our own work first, we have to be able to like, be in that moment and not shut the kid down because then that's, they learn, oh, I hurt, like mom is now sad. Maybe I'm not supposed to talk about fatness. Fat is bad, blah, blah, blah. We just keep perpetuating it, right? Yes, absolutely. And also the complimenting side of things, As a child, Mm. I can remember being complimented on my physical appearance. And as an adult, I try and catch myself. And again, sometimes I will be like, oh my gosh, she's so cute or he's so cute or whatever it is. But I really am trying to focus more on compliments that are about effort uh, or to focus on strength and those sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good that you're doing that. that. Even that, right? Like it's so easy for us to let slip something like, oh my gosh, so-and-so looks amazing. They've lost weight or (laughs) those sorts of things. Our kids hear it and it all adds to it. Yeah, it does. I mean, we should not become, I mean, as a general rule, again, this is hard. This is so baked in, but as a general rule, why would we ever need to comment on someone's appearance? Do we need to? You know, wow, she looks so happy today. Oh, she's glowing. She looks refreshed. She must have slept well. Like, why does it? And, and, oh God, we should never. I mean, anyone listening, please, if you comment on weight, stop it. Stop. That's another one with my foot down. Immediately stop it. We don't know what's going on in people's lives. Again, you're just, that just perpetuates this idea that thin is better. And, it, it's what it is the number one thing that, or not the number one thing, but like up there in terms of what creates shame in people and what drives intentional weight loss is that as bodies change, they either receive compliments or silence or negative talk. And it's so impactful on us. It's just better not to comment on people's bodies at any time. We just really shouldn't. It's none of our business. And where then, of course, the next comment people have is, oh, but I'm just concerned for their health. Well, I've already dispelled that. And if you don't believe me, go listen to all those other people I listed. Their health is fine. And even if it's not, it's not, it's not up to you. Like health is, is, is not your, other people's health is not our business, you know? Oh, it's so layered. It's so layered, Kylie. There's a lot here. <laughs> it is so layered. And that's one of the reasons I've so enjoyed listening to your podcast. I will often pop it on and I'll find myself learning and thinking and feeling. There have been episodes on your podcast that I've had playing while I'm sitting here working because ADHD, I need lots of stimulation to work. <laughs> so I'll be like listening and working and doing all of the things. And I'll just find myself welling up and I'm welling up for the person sharing their story, similar to when you shared your story about crying silent tears on the way home from the booth incident. And Mm. 
it's impactful because you feel it for the person going through it, but you feel it for society as a whole. I can recognize how it impacts me and obviously it impacts me differently, but it's just this big thing that we're not talking about about enough. And so I'm really, really grateful that you are having these powerhouse conversations (laughs) and you are doing it with joy. Tell my listeners about your podcast, please. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for that. Um, Yeah. My podcast is called Fat Joy. And like I said, I started my own body liberation journey, which meant I stopped. Oh God. The other thing people could do is stop weighing themselves immediately. My gosh. I used to weigh myself like four times a day and I would track it and I would like, you know, after morning, after your coffee, you have a little trip to the bathroom. Oh, let me weigh myself now. I mean, like, really, like, come on, we got to stop doing that. So that's another thing, easy, easy thing people can do. So, you know, I, I started, I stopped weighing myself. I stopped doing calorie math. Suddenly, you know, I was learning about the systems that are at play um, that are really destroying our world. Absolutely. Um, and sacrificing our relationships with others who are different from us. Um, and I was filled, and I still am, filled with rage. And I was like, okay, what do I do with this rage? This rage is fuel. I just felt like, you know, when you like put an arrow in a bow and you pull it back and there's all that kinetic energy just ready to go. I felt like, I think it's called a knocked arrow. I could be wrong. I apologize if I got that wrong, but I felt like a pulled back knocked arrow. But I I was like, but someone point me somewhere. Where do I go? What do I do with this? I am furious that this is how I have been tricked. That, that I was, and I was like learning about capitalism and racism, like all the systems that keep us so oppressed and that we don't even know it. So it was like fully like eyes open. And I was like, okay, I'm filled with rage. I probably should do a podcast about joy. And that's literally the thought that I had. And because I, I am a coach, I'm a leadership coach, I'm a fat activist coach. I, I you know, talking is my thing. Um, I'm also a creative writing coach. So I really believe in the power of story. I also have a neuroscience background. So I know that storytelling, I mean, it's so primal in us, right? And actually at a brain level, when we hear other people's stories, something called neural entrainment happens, which is where our brain waves start to sync up, which is amazing. And so those of you who are listening, your brain is synced up to mine. Ha ha, gotcha. Um, And so like, I was like, I want to share people's stories. I want to share them over and over and over again. Stories of fat people. All my guests are fat. Fat people doing really cool shit in the world. And that's really what started it. And (laughs) I just, I've been so blown away by how it's been received. How many how many non-fat people listen to it? I get written to all the time. People are like, oh my God, this is helping me parent better. Oh my God, this is helping me interact with my friends and family better. I got a letter yesterday, I think it was yesterday, the day before, from a school librarian who was like, I have been weeding our books for things that are racist, homophobic, transphobic. But until your podcast, I never thought to think about things that were fat phobic. 
So I weeded those two. Thank you. And I was like that. Oh, I could cry just thinking about that. That was like, holy shit, that's real world impact that now a school is not going to perpetuate anti-fatness in their kids. And then she was like, hey, do you have research? Like, where can you point me? I want to like, I've got a huge budget now. I want to like bring in lots of fat positive stuff. I'm like, oh my God, the kids are so lucky to have you. Um, so there, it just, it's been growing. I just reach out to people and they say, yes, they're happy to talk to me. <laughs> like it's been, I, it feels like, I mean, a podcast is not effortless by any means. There's a lot of work that goes on in the background, <laughs> as you know, but what has felt so easeful and on purpose is how it has so beautifully come together and I mean, I have I have someone who reached out who's a professional writer and was like, hey, a bunch of your guests have books. Can I write book reviews for them for free? Because I want to support your podcast. I'm like, absolutely, you can. I, I'm starting next week, actually. I was reached out by, um, by a young woman who goes to Wesleyan College in the US who's like, hey, I'm about to start my master's, but can I be your intern for the summer? And I'm like, sure. Okay. Like people are just like wanting to like contribute and add their efforts as well. So to me, it feels very community based. Um, people send me like, oh, could you please try and talk to so-and-so? I'm like, amazing. Yay. Um, and it just comes back to, for me, this idea of what I, the rage I was feeling is rebellion. I, <laughs> I have become like such a fucking rebel, I'm just like, no, I, and maybe this is what happens. I hear this happens in our forties. I'm totally feeling it. Um, where I have a lot of, I do have a lot of privilege. I have the privilege to be rebellious because I have safety and security and education and I am white. So I want to use it for something. I want to make empathy grow for fat people. You know, I want, I want that. And if I can help do that with my voice, um, with my resources, then I will. I feel like it's kind of like the least I can do with my privilege and my my talents. Like I'm a good talker. So why not use it? Absolutely. And I love that you spoke about the rage and the joy and the action that you have felt compelled to take in your 40s. I've heard it described like we keep getting system upgrades and that's what I feel like's happened for me in the last couple of years and I'm excited to turn 40 and 45 and 50 and beyond and continue getting these system upgrades because the way that I think and I'm curious about things is so different in comparison to the way that I was thinking, you know, a decade ago. And that's why I wanted to have you on the podcast, Sophia, is because you your podcast is phenomenal. You are definitely out there changing lives and changing the way people think and feel and show up and starting conversations. And what an incredible thing you have just shared about the school. That's amazing. As an um, avid reader, that is really, really cool. I am so grateful for your time today. And I really hope our listeners jump on over and press follow on your podcast. Jump on over and follow you on social media. We will have all of the links in our show notes. And I hope that everyone who has listened to our conversation today is asking themselves, what is it that they think when they hear the word fat? And just start there. 
just start unpacking your own biases. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, Kylie, thank you. And I just want to add, I don't know if I told you this, but I'm going to tell you on the air now, which is that um, when you wrote me, my first response was, oh, hell no. I am oh, not I knew it, babe. A, I knew it. Right? <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to go on a podcast and like try to convince someone that, which is, but then I, I slept on it. And then I responded to the producer. I said, you know what? I'm not going to say no, because talk about my own bias showing up, which is not okay. And I was like, I think I need to talk to Kylie first. Let's just, let me just find out the why, because that's a pretty intentional choice to ask, to ask me on. Um, and, and, you know, you sent me those messages and as soon as I heard them, I was like, oh, we can be aligned a hundred percent. And this is what I want for our world. There's no reason that you and I should other each other. And I feel like we just really got to be in that and demonstrate that. And I'm so grateful, Kylie. I really am. It's been so fun being on this and just talking about the complexity and the bigness of all of it, trying to make sense of it. And you know what? Not doing it perfectly. And that's perfect. Well, now you've made me cry. <laughs> and I don't all accomplished. You. Like, like, like all accomplished. I got her. I broke it down. I got her. I love a tear. <laughs> like, I, like I said to you, I can understand you might jump over to my Instagram account and be like, hell no. So that makes sense to me. <laughs> and these are all the things I'm unpacking, right? Because, you know, even just uh, this week, I did an interview with someone discussing the beauty load. And I like my opening line was like, I'm nervous because I'm so complicit in this, right? Mm-hmm. Like I am so complicit. I And we got into unpacking all of it. And I think that's all we can do, right? Like yeah. it's very easy to look the other way and say, not me, not me. Like everyone who says, I'm not racist. I have a black friend. It's the same thing, mm-hmm. you know? Exactly. So I'm grateful. I'm grateful yeah. for your time. I'm grateful for your education and for all of the work you're doing. I will link to everything in the show notes, including the resources you've shared during our conversation. Sophia, you are a joy. <laughs> Thank you. Today's podcast episode was recorded on the land of the Bunjalung Nation. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 